Welcome to Black and Green Podcast, episode number 10. It is July 3rd, 2018. I am your host, Kevin Tucker. Uh, been almost a month since the last episode. In the summer, it's going to slow down a little bit just because um, it's really hot and uh, doing this without a fan is difficult. So uh, that and competing with other writing and things like that, uh, I'll do my best to be a little more regular. And also I'm going to try and finally figure out how to do uh, interviews and conversations and things like that, record that stuff. So I can have some more interactive stuff and you, you know, so just have to listen to me talking. Uh, but anyways, I got a little bit of catch up here um, to fill in since the last episode. And I've been getting a bunch of letters and some reactions and stuff like that. And I really appreciate it. I also get letters that have a little bit of hesitation about writing me um, for whatever reason. Uh, don't hesitate. Obviously, the, a lot of the time, the people I don't really want to hear from are the people that I hear from the most. Uh, but I have had some awesome conversations with people, and I think that there will be more to come from some of that in the near future. But for now, I'll just go through a couple different things. The first thing I want to get to is Black and Green Review number six. Uh, we've been working on it quite a bit. And uh, I've got some stuff going in. I've been got some stuff I've been writing on the side uh, alongside the book and everything. Um, I'll just put up the cover on uh, the Instagram site, and I'll probably have it up on the actual website. Uh, actually, I, I probably do that in the next couple of days. Uh, if it's not there, it will be there. So blackandgreenreview.org. Uh, art is by uh, somebody who's been kind of following out. I don't know what you would call it. Uh, somebody who's been in contact about Black and Green stuff for a while, this guy, Eric Jackman, and it is awesome. I really love it. Uh, the quote we have on the back cover, which the, the cover is a woodcut, and it's kind of like a city island being overcome by waves. It looks look really awesome, and you just got to see the actual art. Um, but the cover, that, or the, sorry, the quote we got for the back of the cover this time, I think is exceptionally fitting for everything that's going on right now and seems to really sum it up and I hope sums the issue up pretty well. And it is from Brian Fagan's Floods, Famines, and Emperors, which I believe I have talked about on the book on the show a number of times before. Uh and it came out in um nineteen ninety nine. So I have often said that this book came out around the same time as Guns, Germs and Steel from uh Jared Diamond. And if people had read this book, which is uh, subtitled El Nino and the Fate of Civilizations, instead of Guns, Germs, and Steel, that the entire conversation we'd be having now would be much better. Fagan has written a ton of books, but this one in particular is really good, and I definitely strongly recommend it. The quote is, Those who claim they control the cosmos and the future of civilization survive only as long as they are able to command the loyalty of their subjects. It's a short and simple quote, as they often are on the back cover, uh, but I think that... It says a lot, and uh, I'm sure everybody's been seeing and following in the news and everything like that. Uh, the news continues to, and the, the state of the world continues to decline very quickly, and we are seeing a lot of really crazy stuff happening very fast. And that is a subject we will come back to for the main thing that I want to discuss tonight, which is going to come down to identity politics, the internet, and uh, the rising tide of fascism and responses to it and the role of the internet. So we will get back to that shortly. But first, a quick update of of Gods and Country, the book that I'm working on right now. Uh, the Domestication of Our World is the byline on it. Uh, if you have heard from the 
podcast before. I talk about it pretty regularly, um, and I will continue to as I'm working through it. Uh, it's going a little bit slower than I had planned, but it's uh, not for lack of effort. Uh, I've been kind of just on this habit of following every lead, um, and some of the things I thought could be summed up quicker or easier, uh, that's not the case, and it's just when dealing with the subject matter, which is uh, a com- like a dual narrative. There's there's two sides of the book, and the one aspect of it is the story of the rise of religion and nationalism and patriarchy um, from nomadic hunter-gatherers to, and then dealing with it and reactions to domestication. Uh, and the other side of it is the impact of missionaries on the societies that I'm discussing. So it opens with missionaries in the Rani and then it talks about nomadic hunter-gatherers and uh, societies with healers instead of shamans and without religion, uh, or a strict formal sense of religion. Um, and then, you know, of course, all the, the primal anarchy of these societies uh, and the various ways in which they not only have a lack of group identity and, and gr- lack of defensible territory and things like that, but the fact that these are made impossible by the, the way that hunter-gatherers live, nomadic hunter-gatherers live. Uh, and then, of course, you know, to get into some really uh, depressing stuff every other time, um, talking about how missionaries have and colonizers have conquered these people and taken them over and uh, subjugated them to all kinds of insanity. And the chapter I'm working on, there's the third chapter dealing with the Ache of Paraguay and the genocide it committed against them. And there's there's a, a lot of circumstances that this particular instance was repeated um, over and over again, but the way that nomadic hunter-gatherers dealt with colonizers and dealt with the situation of colonization typically related back to the way that nomadic hunter-gatherers are, are generally more resilient and generally more able to be less tied to a particular place. And you have instances where nomadic hunter-gatherers will move to avoid conflict and impact themselves much more heavily by moving to tougher areas and things like that just to avoid conflict quite often. Uh, And so that didn't keep away the colonizers, obviously. Uh, And there's, there was impacts going on, you know, from, from the very origins of colonization and going back to sedentary hunter gatherers and horticultural neighbors and things like that. Um, colonizing and going to war with them as well but it brought a lot to the surface circa you know 1900 and then particularly after world war ii um you had smaller planes and you had missionaries and you had oil uh and all those things are kind of the perfect storm that really made it possible for everybody to continue to push further and further into these areas and that's where the hunter gatherers have been um located and and staying out and hiding out or not necessarily hiding but kind of riding out the storm more or less so you have a much more contemporary account of when missionaries came into contact and colonizers came into contact with a lot of these societies and the absolutely devastating results Uh, so when you talk about the uh genocide of the Aceh, you're talking about like roughly 1968 up until the mid-1970s and then creating policies that continued on. So this is really recent stuff. And despite the fact that it is so recent, uh, it is exceptionally hard to find information on. Um, And that's something I've been coming up against. Uh, The dictator at the time was a guy named Stroessner. And he was the longest standing dictator in Latin America. 35 years he held power 
And just for reference, Castro was 32. Um, there was the Chaco War, which is between Paraguay, uh, Bolivia, and um, Argentina. And that was in the early 1900s. And according to accounts that I've read, it was one of the most bloody wars in the history of Latin America. And when you're going through the history of the world or even history of Latin America, even even a book like uh, a notable book like Edward Galliano's Open Veins of Latin America, very little reference to any of this. It's like pretty fucking crazy that this has gone so unnoticed or so unrecognized in the span of global history and even very recent times, despite the fact that these are all just it's it's colonization on level 11 the entire way um so I'm working on all of that and i still think the book should be done writing wise uh, in the coming months uh it's just this kind of thing that i keep coming up on but again i want to keep talking about it because one the contents and the things that i'm finding things i'm coming up against are insane um and really cannot be forgotten by history uh, but also because I have been getting more recommendations. Um, I've found some books, I've had some recommendations over the last month that have been really, really good and I really appreciate. So I don't usually talk about works in progress like this, but this is the case I'm making the exception on because the stuff missionaries and the churches have gone to such insane lengths to try and hide all this stuff that it really takes a lot of work to dig it out. So uh, if you have suggestions, if you have anything you've come across, anything you want to discuss, by all means reach out. Uh, you can use the Black and Green Press uh, email account. So it's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. And if you feel like writing a letter, that's Black and Green, P.O. Box 402, Salem, Missouri, 65560. Uh, and if you want to talk about anything else, you can write me through those as well. I can be really bad about writing back at sometimes and I tend to get overwhelmed uh, So and then play catch up. So my apologies if it takes a long time, but that tends to be the case. But that said, uh, you know, we we are looking for stuff for Black and Green Review number six as well. So same information, same contacts, same webpage. All the information is on there. Uh, this issue is looking like it's going to be really good and I'm really stoked about it and there's more stuff that We've been discussing amongst the editors that uh, I want to bring out. But if you don't listen to Anarchy Radio, which is John Zerzan's uh, weekly radio show in Eugene, which you can get the links to, johnzerzan.net, uh, he posts the episodes up on there. Usually it's, it's a Tuesday night, and it's usually Wednesday is when they get posted. Uh, but John's been reading little little bits and pieces from some of the contributions and some of the discussion that's going on there as well. So if you want to get a little insight on that, there's that. So a real quick piece of news that I want to throw in, and this is from something that just happened, the uh, Capitol Gazette newspaper shooting in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, probably have more about some of this stuff later, but I mean, frankly, by the time I do, there will be more shootings than probably shootings like it, so I'm not making any promises. But there was one little piece of information that uh, came out, and I didn't pull a full thing on this or anything like that, but I just thought it needed to be mentioned and I will have in number six a follow-up to some of the stuff in the suffocating void uh, and pretty much a response to and follow-up on some of the Cambridge Analytica stuff and things like that I've talked about in earlier episodes of this podcast uh, and then some of the stuff I'm going to talk about tonight for Black and Green to be number six um, but that that piece of information is apparently the shooter was not 
cooperating with the police in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and the way that they were able to identify him was through facial recognition software. Um, so that's important. Uh, I think that that's something that's going to be missed often. Uh, and there's a lot more issues about this this entire shooting and any shooting that happens like it that's going to get a lot more attention, um, a lot rightfully so. But, I mean, you cannot separate these things from the Internet and the fact that this guy was writing uh, because of things that were posted about him on the Internet, and that's what instigated the whole thing. And, of course, everything else that's going on in this world and the way that things are ramped up by the Internet, all these things are attached, but at the same time, you know, the whole issue of data mining and data collection really comes back to this and it's like you know if you have photos of yourself online the entire purpose of ai the entire purpose of of the data mining is to try and pull these little pieces of information so if you have pictures of yourself online uh and even pictures that are being used by any kind of public machine attached to any of the stuff or any kind of smart tech or whatever you want to call it um that this can be militarized this can be weaponized this can be used against you and that's not necessarily news but this is the first time that i can recall where it was being used at this level and being kind of thrown in there this quickly uh, as though it were good news. So it was like, we figured out who this guy was by using this. It's like, oh, hey, here's this thing we threw in here. They always want to tell the story where technology saves the day or what technology helps in stopping the crime or whatever it is that's happening. Of course, in this case, it had already happened. He was in custody, um, but it wasn't coming through police database or anything like that. It was probably coming through his social media profiles and then matching his face. So good reason to delete your information and delete your photos from social media. So I want to give a quick plug to a book that I've found recently, a book called Severed, A History of Heads Lost and Heads Found. It's written by an anthropologist, Francis Larson. Um, and uh, to be honest, I thought this book was going to be kind of a, it's from 2014. I thought this book was going to be kind of a uh, Barnes Noble fair pop science kind of little quick read kind of deal, something like that, which it is a pretty relatively quick read. But usually that stuff is, you know, a little bit of shock and just meant to make way for a second or something like that. Uh, but I thought this book was actually really good. And uh, by no means does it let Europeans and colonizers off the hook or even uh, scientists or anything like that off the hook about the whole history and fascination with head collecting. Um, but uh, naturally a subject that's going to come up in, you know, gods and country and has come up in a couple other things I've written, particularly society without strangers. And I, I think there might be a little bit in hooked on a feeling, both of which are in uh, gathered remains as well as black and green review number three and four respectively or sorry, inversely. Um, but yeah, so uh, this section here, I think does a really good job of kind of summing up the relationship that we tend to have and also talking about the reactions that people have when they go to some of these museums, this particular museum that she worked at, which had a bunch of uh, Shuar uh, heads, which are also the uh, Yavaro, um, or in South America, and they're notorious kind of head hunters. Uh, but I'm just going to read a little bit of this, and it's kind of... I think doing a really good job of nailing the role of colonization in kind of creating these supposedly exotic fantasies and who's a sick person. So she's talking about various reactions. And I'll go into the quote here. But what no one asks is, how did they get here? What are they doing hanging up in a university museum in the south of England? 
Once you start to answer that question, you realize that shrunken heads like these are a product of as much of European curiosity, European taste, and European purchasing power as they are of an archaic tribal custom. It is time to turn the spotlight around and point it back as the people like you and me and at our ancestors who were responsible for bringing hundreds of these heads into museums and people's homes and who were delighted them as much as, if not more than, the people who created them in the first place. After all, it is not the shore that are, pres- that are pressing their noses to the glass of an exhibition case in the Oxford University Museum. The heyday of shore headhunting in the late 19th century, when head-taking raids were occurring roughly once a month and involved hundreds of people, was driven by a booming international trade in shrunken heads. Back in the cities of Europe and America, shrunken heads from South America, India, and the Pacific Islands could be found in the shops and auction houses, in museums, and in people's houses. They always sold well and gradually supply rose to meet demand. It was simple. Europeans wanted Schwar shrunken heads, and the Schwar wanted European knives and guns. The shrunken heads in our museums are not the remnants of some untouched, savage way of life as much as they are the product of the economics of colonial expansion and the power of a fantasy about savage culture. The most famous headhunting cultures, far from being stuck in time, were responding to foreign tastes. In the 1880s, as the trade in rubber and cinchoa bark were provided, uh, which provides the active ingredient for the anti-malarial drug quinine, spread into Ecuador, more European settler communities came to the, to the area. The settlers exchanged cloth, machetes, steel lance heads, and shotguns with the native Shuar people in return for local pigs, deer, salt, and shrunken heads. But when the settlers began to keep their own cattle and so eat their own beef, the demand for Shuar pigs and deer declined, and eventually it was only the shrunken heads, or else the Shuar's own labor, that settlers were interested in. The Shuar who wanted goods like cloth and machetes could trade with local missionaries who offered these things more cheaply than commercial traders, but the missionaries would never sell guns. This meant that the only way to get a gun was to sell a head, and so the heads for guns trade became established in South America. When visitors come to see shrunken heads at the Pitt Rivers Museum, what they're really seeing is the story of a white man's gun. Guns not only provide an economic incentive for the Shuar raiders, they also provided to be the best means for taking heads in the first place. Guns and steel knives were far more efficient weapons for head-taking than spears made from wood and stone, and they gave Shuar a distinct advantage during head-hunting raids. Europeans and Americans bought heads, and they supplied the equipment. The Shuar needed to take heads quickly and in great numbers. Guns were used to take heads, which in turn exchanged for more guns. Well into the 20th century, it was completely acknowledged that the price of one shrunken head was one gun. There is the story of a Shuar leader who trained some, uh, traded some heads for guns, promptly used the guns to ambush another Shuar war party, and used those heads to trade for more guns. It was not always so. Shuar headhunting traditions stretched back at least to the 16th century, but most of our knowledge of Shuar head-taking dates into the late 19th century when shrunken heads were traditionally created as part of a complex cultural ritual that harnessed the awesome power of a Shuar's soul after death. These heads were not war trophies, in the usual sense of the word, because the Shuar and Ajwar people who took the heads lived, for the most part, in peace with one another, and they did not value the physical head so much as the power that resided within it. Heads were not taken in warfare. Instead, tribal raids were organized specifically to take heads or sasanas because sasanas were powerful things, and a man who possessed sasanas was a powerful man. To this extent, the shuar taking heads was a socially acceptable form of violence. So again, that book is called uh, Severed, and uh, a lot of stuff in there about... European fascination with heads and taking heads and the guillotine and public executions and morbidly curious scientists, things like that. Um, but it was a good read. I like it. Uh, so, uh, 
Uh, and again, some more of that is going to be discussed for sure in Of Gods, and again, is gone over a good bit in Gathered Remains. So last point of order before I get on with the main topic here, uh, just responding to some mail stuff and everything like that. Um, I've had some people make some good requests and some other stuff that I haven't gotten to and I'm not going to be able to get to tonight. I will say I have seen requests for both in Black and Green Review and on the podcast to discuss this online phenomena of what uh, four-legged human is rightfully called anarcho-primitivism, which kind of harks back to this mythical sense that there was a vegetarian or vegan hominid that existed prior to or contemporarily with Homo sapiens and that hunting and gathering Homo sapiens wiped them out, killed them, potentially ate them, um, and that hunter-gatherers are evil. What this ever has to do with anarcho-primitivism, I will never know, um, and it was suggested that I talk to um, Ian Smith of Uncivilized Animals, who's also contributed to Black and Green Review, and uh, I would say just because he's vegan doesn't mean that I think he believes any of this stuff, and as far as I've seen, he hasn't written about it, and not many people that I uh, care to acknowledge do. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. We're uh, anarcho-primitivists. We deal with hunter-gatherers. These are people who lived in anarchy. They lived in there for a long time. And by all means, any idea about some mythical vegetarian version of humans just didn't exist. You're trying to rewrite history. It doesn't work that way. Uh, and I, I don't have to acknowledge it. If you want me to talk about veganism... I don't have very good things to say, and you probably want to hear it. I probably will talk about it in later episodes, but sorry. Um, Vegans, things like that, I I don't care. Whatever you eat, cool. I have my opinions, I have my diet, uh, and I have my ideas about it. It's all well and good, and I understand fully why people go vegan, and unlike Larry Keith or something like that, like I won't give credit, I understand that you mean well and you're intending to do well, but to try and say that... um, hunter-gatherers are innately evil uh, and to piggyback that off of a whole lot of insane theories I don't have anything good to say about that so if you eat vegan fine, I don't but yeah no, I don't, you know, people thinking that I'm going to magically change my mind about that stuff, it's just not going to happen and I'm not going to waste any more time on it than I currently have so that's that um, unless you have something that you actually want to present other than some kind of hypothetical scenario that is just what it is and that's with black and green review same deal um i would advise people to read the interview with norga goddess from number five um but other than that it's not a subject i really care too much about talking more on right now so the main thing i wanted to talk about tonight is something i've been wanting to talk about for quite a while and this has to do with uh identity politics and the rise of this kind of neo-tribalism uh, I called, you know, called something like bro tribalism, things like that before. Uh, I made mention of it and I will continue to make mention of it. And it's, it's, it seems to me to be part and parcel of the entire social media experience and the entire kind of social media Google world that has been created. And you get all these different aspects of things that we've heard considerably. And I think, you know, at this point can't say enough, but I will continue to repeat uh, people talk about the the Google effect and the echo chamber of Facebook uh, where you're kind of building up these identities. And, of course, that stuff doesn't come from nowhere, and that charges it. Um, things like even just looking at the, the hacking stuff and looking at Russia and looking at, uh, like, all these different counterintelligence kind of methods that are going on 
and have been going on for some time to just like amplify the chaos uh, of the the platforms of social media. Uh, all that stuff fits into it, but to really get at that, I think you have to kind of take a look at where that stuff comes from. And that's something that I've been interested in for a while and I think has been worth talking about, but I haven't really covered it. And as we're seeing things like the ICE detentions uh, playing out right now, uh, these are obviously all much bigger issues. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of charge to it, and I think it's worth kind of really going into the details on this. And there's a, a relatively new book here um, by a guy named Jaron Lanier, uh, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media. I'm not plugging the book. Um, I think that Jaron Lanier, who is a Silicon Valley kind of offshoot, I guess he has some virtual reality company, and I, to be totally honest, I haven't paid too much attention to him or paid even too much attention necessarily what he does, but some of the VR headsets, the kind of Oracle shit and stuff like that, something to do with that. And I'm pretty positive he's still involved with it and still has these companies, but he's kind of billed himself as the new Bill Joy, the guy who, who's been involved in growing the whole thing. And, and you're seeing this kind of constantly. A lot of the people who fall out from Facebook and fall out from a lot of the social media companies, they kind of try and become saviors as being whistleblowers and things like that. Um, and they didn't try to pump the brakes necessarily. They're just like, oh, by the way, that thing we created is monstrous and huge and it's got to keep consuming everything that you know. And so when you get people like this and they don't actually pull out of the companies, it's, it's hard to take them very seriously. And with Jaron Lanier, uh, I know he's written a number of books and I, I'd be honest, I'm not horribly interested in most of them. Uh, maybe even all of them at all. Uh, but he's kind of like the Johnny Mnemonic version of Ray Kurzweil. Um, this weird kind of futurist world music guru guy that's looks like a kind of like a failed steampunk, I guess. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm not plugging the guy. I'm not saying that he's necessarily at this whole, he's, he's figured something out innately different here. But it is interesting when you see people like this making these kind of points and doing this kind of talk. Uh, and he's he's built this new book around the idea of this uh, pretty forced acronym called Bummer. Uh, I'm going to read like a tiny bit of the book as just kind of like a jumping pad for this, this particular discussion. Uh, but in order to do so, I have to kind of spell out the acronym. And the acronym is Bummer, which is Behaviors of Users Modified and Made into an Empire for Rent. So pretty damn contrived. Obviously, he is a computer scientist, not much of a writer, um, and I'm sure he considers himself a musician, but I can imagine his music is forcibly contrived as Bummer is. But, you know, I get it. Uh, talking about social media as a Bummer, yeah, it makes sense. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty awful. <clears throat> but uh, this book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media, I'll just get down to it. So this is the one part. Not so interested in this book in particular, but I was I thought this this section in particular was interesting. And he's talking about the rise of Black Lives Matter. So just reading from the book a little bit here. Black Lives Matter appeared and gained prominence during the typical honeymoon phase of Bummer activism. And as always, the early phase was hopeful and felt substantial. Bummer was giving black activists a new channel to influence and power. More money and power for the Bummer companies for sure, but also more empowerment for new armies of Bummer users. Win win, right? But during the same honeymoon, 
behind the scenes, a deeper and more influential power game was gearing up. The game that mattered most was out of sight, occurring in algorithmic machinery and huge hidden data centers around the world. Black activists and sympathizers were carefully cataloged and studied. What wording got them excited? What annoyed them? What little things, stories, videos, anything kept them glued to bummer? What would snowflakeify them enough to isolate them bit by bit from the rest of society? What made them shift to be more targetable by behavior modification messages over time? The purpose was not to repress the movement, but to earn money. The process was automatic, routine, sterile, and ruthless. Meanwhile, automatically, black activism was tested for its ability to preoccupy, annoy, even transfix other populations, who themselves were then automatically cataloged, prodded, and studied. A slice of latent white supremacists and racists who had previously not been well identified, connected, or empowered was blindly, mechanically discovered and cultivated, initially only for automatic, unknowing commercial gain. But that would have been impossible without first cultivating a slice of bummer black activism and algorithmically figuring out how to frame it as a provocation. Bummer was gradually separating people into bins and promoting assholes by its nature before Russians or any of their clients showed up to take advantage. When the Russians did show up, they benefited from a user interface designed to help advertisers target populations which, with tested messages to gain attention. All the Russian agents had to do was pay bummer for what it came to bummer naturally. Black Lives Matter became more prominent as a provocation and object of ridicule than as a cry for help. Any message can be reframed to incite a given population if message vandals follow the winds of the algorithms. Components F and A locked together. So that's Lanier's take, um, and I don't really fully agree with him and especially on his timeline uh i think that his focus and, and of course throughout the book and throughout the chapter he's really kind of getting back to the, you know how did this happen but how did hillary clinton lose to donald trump and blah, blah blah so just keeps coming back to the russians and um there is a basic truth to the underlying principle here and i think there's a bigger ordeal to really talk about and expose in terms of looking at uh, Black Lives Matter and some of these activist groups and activist movements and things like that have come about and the hashtags in particular in terms of how those uh, supposed discussions or resistance or activism and things like that are are built into kind of the online culture. Um, and, you know, it, it almost makes it sound like he's blaming Black Lives Matter for some of the things that happened or thinking that Black Lives Matter was the thing that instigated all this stuff, which looking back at a timeline of this and even having, you know, this is obviously very recent history. Um, this really, that's really not where I got the start. Obviously um, it, it played a lot into the electoral politics of the last election and into things that are ha- unfolding and happening currently. Uh, if you're a liberal, which I imagine he is, and it seems to be, I imagine that is all stuff that he's looking at. And that seems to be the case, but you know, it, it goes deeper and there's more to it than that. So kind of taking a look at that and where that's set aside, I I think that this trend that he is getting at and talking about is the kind of thing that I've seen since, or I've been talking about and noticing since really the Arab Spring. Uh, and that's when everybody was talking about Twitter and talking about the role Twitter had in, in creating these revolutions and creating these resistance movements. Um, and it, it was interesting to see because the Arab Spring really came from rising food prices that had to do with climate change. It had to do with shifts in um, weather patterns. It had to do with the growing seasons and it had to do with the distribution of limited supplies of food in a global market. So there was a lot involved in the Arab Spring, but it seemed like all anybody wanted to really talk about was the role that Twitter played in all of this. 
Uh, and then, you know, people just feeling very positive and feeling like they can kind of congratulate themselves for uh, the role they played in either supporting, pay attention to, or giving credence to uh, the kind of resistance that was being born of the Internet for, for really the first time in a really significant way. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about these things and it's, it comes down to people wanting to say, and particularly liberals and leftists wanting to say, it's like these tools, social media, social networking can be used for good. It can be used for democratizing the voice of the people and for all, all this kind of feel good shit really. Um, and that, is one of the reasons why any discussion about social media and social and social technology, social networks, uh, and particularly the the technological platforms that require them, smartphones and things like that, it, they all get washed aside because everybody wants to believe that because we're having you know this the hashtag MeToo movement, that we're having the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement and things like that, that there is a discussion going on and that there is something that's happening and and it's very true in a very specific sense. And uh, really what it comes down to, I've talked on here and I've talked in other places, is just it's all about that interaction. Um, and it's all about the the programmers, the people who are writing these algorithms, the, the domesticators of our times, just wanting you to exist on these places and to exist in these platforms and to engage them and to kind of pour yourself out into them. And that's a point that I really don't think can be hit harder on enough and that that this area and talk about, you know, safe spaces and things like that. Somehow the online space became that safe space. So this is a little bit of writing I did the other day that I have not fully placed yet. Um, Obviously it's not on technology, but I'm just going to read it. Uh, The gurus of the electronic age hail a new borderless world culture, one where every voice is given equal footing and everyone has the right to self-representation. That's the sales pitch. The reality is technocracy, one determined by algorithms, catered by states and corporations for a purge of every whim and compliant that in order to gain more data to the endless pursuit of an application. They want us to feel free and safe and heard so we hold nothing back, and it has been exceptionally successful. We relinquish to the cloud the thoughts and confessions what's demanded of by a fictional god. It was a self-service form of policing, eyes were on you figuratively. The all-seeing AI is literal. It takes everything as data to build the algorithms that increasingly predict and tweak our, our behaviors and our desires. And there's there's a lot here. Uh, and it's hard to get to in one particular podcast, any one paper, essay, or any kind of thing like it. But it's, it's something that we need to keep in mind. It's something that we need to keep figuring out this framework because the discussion keeps being about what's the content happening here? What, what is this particular movement that's happening that people are being pushed forward on? And you and you see this, and I, you know, again, as I talked about in an earlier episode, you see it with the Me Too stuff. You have this one side where it's just like, as soon as somebody's called out, uh, you know that there there's action taken upon it, and like uh, people on the left and everything like that will will push on this person to step down, and then on the right, it's like as soon as it happens, it, you know, it didn't happen. It's all fake, um, and it, it's freakish that this kind of situation is so familiar but the problem is is that coming from a punk uh kind of crust whatever hardcore background um you know the me too stuff has been kind of our our deal unfortunately uh there's a lot of shitheads in the in this scene there's a lot of shitheads in these movements and things like that and 
if I had to get used to the idea that, it, you know, from time to time you're going to find out about it and you're going to have to deal with that person. And a lot of times it's resulted in just kind of ostracizing them or kicking them out of the scene. I've seen instances before where somebody was just run from one town to another, which doesn't really solve the problem. But, you know, it's it's not surprising to me to see this kind of the, the Me Too movement and the expansion of it and the size and scope of it be what it is just because even this microcosm of supposedly feminist-based punk rock was so goddamn rotten, so horrible, and there's so many really just shitty men within it um, that, you know, you could you could see how that would unfold, especially in Hollywood or in mainstream culture or anything like that. But you get that sense, and it's a similar kind of thing where you, you feel like there's something being dealt with and nothing actionable is really happening. Uh, people want to talk about, you know, women potentially running for more elected offices and stuff like that. But then we want to talk about, you know, it's kind of hacked. And of course the whole sham of democracy in the first place, um, the idea that you think you're going to vote this kind of system down um, is patently absurd, but there's just a really major feel good factor that comes from all this stuff. And that's thinking that there's this really divisive split where you've got progressives on one side getting much more progressive and you got conservatives being much more reactionary on the other. Um, and that is how social media needs to be. And that is how it sees the world. And it kind of finds ways to, to craft, to craft the algorithms most specific to every potential win that you have, and then create and cater that existence through the use of algorithms. So the more we use it, the more it uses us, the more it creates predictive patterns, which change and cater the way that we see information being given to us and being suggested to us uh, through every single thing from Amazon shopping cart lists and shopping recommendations down to friend friend recommendations and suggested and uh, boosted posts on Facebook or any other social media. But all of this is important and all of this is, is exceptionally necessary to analyze because it comes down to this question of like, what, what do you do about it? And I have people have talked to me about getting off Facebook and my own instance of getting off Facebook and things like that. Um, what, what can you do? How do you channel channel and challenge all this stuff that's happening right now, which is obviously very clearly bleeding over to the real world. We do have a particularly, virulent rise of fascism and really kind of bold-faced new version of white supremacism or or not even necessarily new, but very unashamed and open version that we're kind of constantly having to be faced with. And that's guiding a lot of stuff. I mean, obviously a lot of these people are fucking pigs. Uh, I'm sure everybody behind ice has got to be just as bad. Um, and you're seeing all these things formulate and and pop up in the real world instead of just being online discussion or online kind of whatever. And you can also see it even in something like you get a kid like Dylan Roof, who if you believe some of the things that were said and written about him, is a kid who found out about uh, Rhodesia and got all excited about um, apartheid and all these things just because he he fell into some white supremacist groups on online and that's the direction he went. Um, and it's, it's easy to see how that happens. And it's easy to see particularly how kids who grow up in this and kids who don't have any real knowledge, um, and kids who not only are having to spend their days in school, learning how to run from, from school shooters and how to deal with school shooters, their entire section, entire knowledge of history and everything like it is, is gutted at the same time. So at the same time that people are being shot in school and killed over school, 
they're getting absolutely nothing from it and they're being given this exactly the same kind of cater bullshit reality and to the point where it's it's becoming notorious and kind of famous to say it's like you know they talk about uh slaves as migrant workers or or things like that which is fucking crazy in case it needs to be said but all this stuff gets treated wrongly like it's coming from nowhere um or in in the very least that it's it's like this this um linear still whole statement that this goes down to black lives matter or this is all this very recent history and it, it is recent and but there's long precedence for all this stuff colonialism being the most apparent um you know when you're looking at ice you know, fucking liberals crying about how this isn't who we are as americans like it's, that's patently absurd that's bullshit this entire country and nation and pretty much every colonized nation is built off family separations and executions and everything else it's built on slavery uh it's built on reservations and indian schools and industrial schools residential schools uh this is this is ethnocide i mean this is just how you do it you tear people apart you take away everything that they possibly know and strip them down to the point where they're a little bit more than just looking for any kind of sustenance and then you get them down to feeling like they're in the same kind of survival predicament we're in where it's like I have no other meaning in life, so yeah, I'll, I'll just be a worker. I'll just do this or that, um, which is the most brute form of domestication, which is plain-faced colonialism uh, and colonization. And that's the kind of experience people are having uh, when they get to the borders. And there's a, a number of aspects about that as well, uh, particularly, and in, in you can see in just relating back to this discussion about social media and the online presence and the way things are being twisted, you know, kind of this weird idea where the, the reality is people flee um, countries from Mexico and, and South America, Central America because of violence, because of a number of reasons, because colonization came down and destroyed the places they're at and created uh, civil wars and cartels and paramilitaries and they're having to flee from the violence. And then we are enforcing, and the United States is enforcing the border wall all of a sudden uh, and then talking about these people coming th- or coming through and how people keep flooding the country and all this stuff and it's just it's hard to watch and it's hard to see. And it's also hard to hear the way that people talk about this stuff. One and anybody talking about borders in a colonized land, which is really fucking insane bullshit. But this is, this is kind of how things go. And it's mentally made to look like, it's like, Oh, people still want to come here. It's like, now they're, they're fleeing. Like you don't get to say that, Hey, we're going to be uh, the beacon of, of liberty and the beacon of everything people want to become. It's just, it's, you know, this is, again domestication this is colonization this is the entire narrative making of civilization right here it's like we'll throw you out of your home and then when you try and find somewhere else to live we're gonna say it's like oh you want to live like us now um which is kind of crazy but anyways this is kind of a rambling kick in here to what what i see is the issue and kind of getting down to or one one major part of this issue which is that the the stuff didn't arise in a vacuum and there's there's a long precedent for all these actions and for all these things and it, it became ironically more of a, a kind of a binary situation it's like i'm pro or anti on all these issues and of course in that regard lanier is correct in saying it's like it can kind of create the the algorithms do create data mines so that they can build very specific frameworks and introduce you to very specific circumstances just to get a rise out of you to get you to react more with the machine. Um, but I, I think that the 
roots for this has to come back to Facebook itself. And you can go back to MySpace, you can go to Twitter, and you get all the stuff. But Facebook is the one that's going to keep getting a little more of attention uh, because it it was the best at creating a situation of like constant updating and constantly saying this is what I'm doing or feeling the need to react with the machine for every kind of movement that you had, which eventually uh, through the through the applications and through everything we've learned, particularly from Cambridge Analytica and all that fallout, is that Google, Facebook, Apple, and all these other companies have really created this perfect machine and the cell phone and being able to track not only what you think and get you to interact with it, but to figure out, geolocate where you are every time that you do uh, and really be able to pinpoint how your your thoughts and behaviors react with the places that you're at and the kind of people that you're discussing. And then they can just do these experiments just to see how things are going. And they're building data sets and they're messing with data sets. The, the idea is to, pr- to create the perfect product uh, or the perfect pitch to have predictive behaviors so they can just pipeline everything and they're going to have to sell the thing. They're going to have to get investors and they're going to have to keep getting money. Um, but, you know, I mean, for them, it's just like a social experiment. And we saw this with Cambridge Analytica. It's just kind of like people seeing, uh, you know, what can I do? How much can I do? How much can I interact with this thing? How much can I push it? And it's really just this elaborate form of trolling. Um, but you, you see where that goes back. And before that machine became as perfect as it was, it was this same kind of scenario of how do you build this this trap? How do you build this this hole that people will continue to go down and people will feel more and more confident and comfortable about becoming integrated with and, and sharing all their information with. And you see a lot online um, people sharing really deep stuff about depression, which is complicated. It's a very difficult issue because it is something that doesn't need to be talked about, particularly in the age of social media. But, you know, as as this point was getting to about Black Lives Matter, it's like at the, at the same time, you know, you're really giving a lot of information to the machine and building these algorithms and turning more and more parts of yourself into data and actionable um, relationships to an algorithm, which is insidious and just, I mean, there's there's no, there's no bottom to it. There's no depth um, too low for this entire structure. Uh, but, you know, when you saw um, Mark Zuckerberg's testimony in response to uh, the Cambridge Analytica stuff and the the Russia investigation, where he talked about how the or the, the platform of Facebook couldn't be considered a monopoly because you could still have your eyes on anything else and the, the way they see things and to be this entirety of your life and this entirety of your existence goes through this platform or goes through this machine. Um, that's that's why they're building data and that's why they need to build all these constant data sets and have your integration there. Um, but the simplest version of it was to me becoming really apparent when Facebook started kicking off and there was a really huge push in terms of identity politics. And coming from an anarchist or a radical circle, of course, identity politics are nothing new. And this is something that's kind of gone on for a very long time and we get cycles of it, particularly with anarchism. Um, And it's it's not to say that the base of it isn't incorrect or even a lot of it isn't incorrect or not strong issues. Um, but the ability and level to respond as everything became much more personal and personable through social media, it played a huge role in all this. Um, and 
so just to kind of give like a personal aspect about it, like when I personally got off Facebook, I had planned to do it. Um, I had written suffocating void and I said, here is my online suicide note or whatever you want to call it. Uh, just basically what it comes down to is I had made my mind up. I was going to delete, uh, the profiles at that time. Uh, this was, you know, uh, something that I found I can, I couldn't take part in anymore. I didn't want to have anything to do with them personally. It was just dragging me down. And the more I understood it, the more I learned about it, the less I wanted anything to do with it. Um, all the arguments about who's going to argue in my place or whatever, you know, whatever I just said, I'm done. Um, but at that time, the day that I actually shut off my accounts, there was a, um, I don't know what you want to call it. It wasn't necessarily a meme, but kind of like a challenge going around, uh, that they were saying that, uh, whoever, whoever was involved in this, whoever was passing it around and said, you should you know, take this challenge where you spend a year and you don't read anything written by a white male. And there's no real way to talk about this stuff without it sounding awful. Um, but my reaction to that was, was really kind of a visceral one. And I, I need to add, I'm sure I'm going to need to add many kind of disclaimers and stuff like that here, because this is easy to take all this stuff out of context. That's how the entire thing works. Um, the entirety of social media and the entirety of just kind of like this, the call out, the particular kind of call out culture it created. Um, but it's, it's not my, my reaction to it had nothing to do with the fact that it's like saying you should read books and you should read and get perspectives of people who aren't white males, which I absolutely agree with. And even as an editor, you know, it's whether or not it, it actually comes about or whether or not I'm actually able to get the voices that I'm, actively putting a lot of attention to or actively trying to seek out is totally different than whether or not I can actually get them. I can't force anybody to write. I can't force anybody to respond to interview requests. I can't force anybody to do anything. Um, and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot more work now to publish and edit a publication or a journal than it would have 10 years ago, just because people are on Facebook and they're getting the immediate response. Um, but for me personally, uh, my my own experiences were absolutely shaped by constantly forcing myself out of comfort zones and kind of forcing myself out of certain situations. So I had a, a weird perspective where you know St. Louis County is is massive, uh, and I grew up in St. Louis, and it was St. Louis County is one of the fastest growing. Um, counties in the United States and really set the entire tone for suburbanization, urban sprawl uh, through the eighties and the nineties. Um, but, uh, there's a, there's still a magnet school program, which is busing students from the city in to the county schools and county students out to the city schools, but it very rarely goes both ways. Um, so I went to a county school that's predominantly white and, then I switched high schools to go to the city school and go the other way to go to a, uh, a school in Northside St. Louis. Um, that was also a magnet school and it was very much predominantly black, uh, in a totally different atmosphere. Uh, we had, you know, cops on guard. We had, uh, you know, they had you know, metal detectors and things like that. I think they've got installed in like 94. Uh, it was a very different environment, obviously. Um, but, there was a lot you could see that immediately if you put yourself in these situations or immediately if you kind of, you know, seek to understand the world from any perspective other than your own or kind of see even what the physicality of life looks like in different socioeconomic circumstances or, um, you know, outside of like a cis uh, hetero male perspective or 
a non-white perspective or anything like that, it's very easy to quickly see that, you know, our worlds are catered long before social media. You know, you have white privilege, you have male privilege and patriarchy, and you have this obviously heteronormative entire structure that's built up uh, and around a, a gender binary and entire religious order that's built around maintaining you know, all these very kind of strict guidelines that are then legally enforced. And then you have pigs that physically enforce them. So it's in my, my response to that was never along the lines of like, Oh, I got to do this or I got to do that. Um, or who, who are you to tell me that? I mean, that's, that's kind of the response that you'd see to this kind of circumstance and white people just being very defensive. And it, it had nothing to do with that defensiveness. And I, I can't say enough about that. It's like, you need to constantly confront your own situation. You need to understand civilization, or if you want to understand the world, if you want to take part in it, especially if you take pride in civilization, you need to understand what it looks like from the other side. And that's why, you know, I spend so much time doing anthropology and history and ethnohistory uh, is because these are perspectives of civilization that we're not really going to get, especially, you know, if you're in a place like St. Louis or St. Louis County, you're not going to see necessarily what life looks like, where your oil comes from. Um, and the, that becomes more and more important, but those perspectives are vital. But the problem that I had, uh, came down to the idea that most of the writers that I was reading or I do read, and especially when it comes to like the news, when it comes to, um, academic articles, things like that, I have no idea who is writing them aside from their name. Anything I can kind of extrapolate from their name is about it. And that I think as we've seen is pretty limited. A lot of times people can write from pen names and things like that. Um, but it really became this, this whole instance of the only way that this was possible is if you knew from looking at a picture and being able to extrapolate from it, who the author of every piece was. And, you know, in, in that regard, it's like you're really having to just filter more of your information through this through this network. You had to, you know, if you're, you can. There's editorial pieces in the newspaper that have a, a little small picture, but when you go onto some of these online sites and things like that, it'll be on every single thing. If you go to something like Huffington Post or something like that, there's usually a picture for every editor, author, or something like that on a on a particular piece. That's a very recent thing that's a very internet-based thing um you could find out a little bit more you could have an author photo every now and then or something like that uh in a book but like i said i i don't presume the gender identity of the people i read i don't presume a lot of this stuff unless it's explicitly mentioned um but it, it just became this thing to me that just like i understand where this is coming from and i understand the importance of it but it's it's drawing out more about integrating and getting all of your news and all of your information through this portal. It's actively seeking to have more interactions through the machine and, you know, to take things at face value and to react and respond to things and these these kind of prompts to see how you respond viscerally, whether or not you click on a link or something like that. Because all the algorithms follow all of this information. No piece of data is too small. And if there's a photo of the author and there's social recognition or facial facial recognition software, 
they can build data points. They can build algorithms based on what you clicked and what you didn't. And so in that regard, data becomes power. So you can have a very simple challenge like this that has a very solid intent and a very, very far driven purpose. Um, and it could just be some content. It could be something that there's, there's these people who get paid by um, search engine optimization, the SEO kind of pages and the content builders and stuff like that who get paid 10 cents a word or they get paid, um, you know, a standard $15 an hour for 2000 words a, an hour kind of rate to just kind of create this stuff. And it's just all just clickbait. It's all just stuff you're meant to click on and go with. And then for some reason, some of it takes off more than others. It could come from that. It can come from something much deeper, much better. And I don't presume at all that the people who, who would author a challenge like this necessarily are those people um, or that they necessarily were, were thinking or aware of the kind of data that could be collected off of it or the fact that the, medium itself had become so empowered by that basic kind of understanding by that presumption of like, you know, I should be able to see the author of a piece that I'm reading. Um, but that's the thing. That's how all this stuff works. That's how the social media works. You just become involved and integrated and, and expecting of that and expected to get content that leads you to more content, not through combing the bibliography of a book that you had just read or something like that, but just links in that sponsored product, sponsored ads, indecipherable from other content on the page or, or other news articles or anything else like it. You have to understand that all this stuff is advertising. It's all building up this, this data platform. It's all building up this, the, what is essentially going to be the most large and powerful corporation that we've ever known. And that's the entire artificial intelligence project. Uh, you know, it's not just going to be about building machines. It's going to be about making us more able to react to machines, more comfortable responding to machines than we are anybody else. And so you have this kind of weird situation that is telling to me about how things got started to get as bad and divisive as they have clearly, clearly gotten through social media. And when you get the, the identity politics aspect of it, you really ramp that up. Um, you know, what that is is a reaction to the fact that, you know, this isn't pen pals. This isn't people you're writing 10, and 15, 20 years ago, a letter in the mail through, and you don't necessarily know too much about them, and you could be best friends with somebody for years, and you never actually have seen them or really had a good picture of them. Um, this is the thing where the first thing that you see next to every fucking stupid comment somebody's got on Facebook is a picture of their face. Uh, and, you know, on a, on a very primal level, and again, this is something I'll keep repeating back to, there are aspects of the world that the more we've gotten close to home, the worse it gets. So the more that we have this, this social networking is supposed to be like, it's like a face-to-face -face reaction. You can see the person, whereas in books and letters you couldn't. Uh, but of course the consoles you go through the machine. Um, and there's, there's absolutely no face to face. It's just a picture to a picture. And obviously the pictures can be fake. Uh, so I, I think that that rise that came up, um, that slowly built into what we're seeing right now, which is the, the rise of a, this, this new, very heated, um, and insanely empowered kind of, uh, separatist nationalist rhetoric, uh, and reaction has to come back to that whole point of saying it's like, you know, we kept the identity politics stuff kept drawing out based in response to saying it's like, 
well, I can see you're a white male by looking at your picture. So when you said uh, some stupid comment response to an article that had 300 comments or something like that, somebody could react to that single comment with that single picture and presume a whole lot. And honestly, a lot of it probably is true, but like the entirety of your experience was thrown into data, thrown into algorithms. And then if that person was pissed off and they responded a certain way, then they got fed more information from other angry white guys who got sick of being told, Oh, your opinion doesn't matter. And that creates a level of reactionism that is the entirety of the online experience is really just getting to this point where your reality is so heavily catered that all you do is react. Uh, and in, in a way, just even the suggestions you get, the searches you get, and the directions you're pushed to and the recommendations you're given do all of the thinking for you and do all the working for you so that, you know, when you're getting angry because people tell you that the things you're doing are all cultural appropriation, true or not, uh, it kind of gets pushed into this whole corner. And you could see how that level of discussion goes from being like a learning moment to uh, getting people who, how do I put it, uh, need to follow something, need to belong somewhere, uh, need to be told what it is they are and what they're doing, which is, again, not helpful when they're responding to all these technological prompts, uh, to just keep kind of falling in line and going through the thing. And if you're telling, if these people are hearing that everything they're doing is uh, cultural appropriation or or something like that, then you know that kind of pushes back onto a certain point where, you know, these, these people who have no context and have no prompting for the kind of engagement they're having uh, and very specific and very, you know, very jumping into a conversation because it's the nature of Facebook, it's the nature of the internet, um, and just reacting. And it's like, you know, well, if everything I do is cultural appropriation, then what's my culture? Um, and so you see that. And that slowly built into the algorithms and slowly built into reality and slowly driven into people's reactions to the point where it's like, if I, I, I don't want to be told that I have no culture. I don't want to be told that I need to define myself outside of all these things. And it's like, uh, if everybody else is a culture, what's mine. And that drove a lot of people back to this kind of neo-paganism shit, or I'm sorry, a lot of white people, um, who then felt depressed or displaced and then were like, well, that's where it's at. And that's where you get, you know, talk about the rise of the werewolves and of uh, the wolves of Vinland and shit like that. And this bro tribalism kind of stuff, it comes back to, well, we are colonizers. We are barbarians. This is our culture and this is our place. And we discovered it and all this machismo bullshit mashed in with, um, you know, feeling like, Oh, there's some connection that they have in reality. You know, most white people are more like me than they are some fucking Aryan king or some shit, which I'm just an Eastern European mutt. I have I have no culture. I have no, no place. I come from a fucking ton of places and just just mush, whatever. And frankly, all the people I came from sucked. Uh, and they were colonizers in varying degrees. So uh, there's nothing there that I really want to uh, plunge the depths of other than saying it's like, well... We're all nomadic hunter-gatherers at heart. We're all nomadic hunter-gatherers in our minds, bodies, and the way that we react with the world. That part of me and that part of my history 
he's much closer to me than any of the colonizers that I've never actually met. I've never met my birth parents. I've certainly never met their parents. Um, and I generally don't have much interest in them. And I think there's, there's kind of a sociological and historical aspect of it. That's kind of interesting, but you know, the problem is, is that civilization increasingly has sold this narrative of the fact that you are important and modernity, especially, you know, the self arose through Protestantism um, as a reaction to how do you micromanage people whenever the church becomes a too small of a, a f- too physically small of an institution to monitor the, the minds and actions of all of its parishioners or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, when people are working and people are in industrial jobs and they're working second and third shift and stuff like that, how do you micromanage them so they feel God is watching them? Uh, and judging them for everything they're doing. And that's where you get the idea of the self. It's like God isn't just watching you as a, a Christian or as a member of a church. God is watching you personally. And then that spun out through industrialism, through modernity, until the idea that the self was the most sacred thing. The progress became an ideal, not only because of what it was going to do for a society, but what it could potentially do for you. Um, as we're torn more and more from any semblance of community, we become more and more obsessed with ourselves and become narcissists. So the logical steps of that, or, you know, we have TV, we have increasingly, you know, smaller family housing, um, you know, suburbanization and urbanization. And you go from having uh, community in any kind of sense down to community as a sense of identity, but your lives became more and more individual and you get individual bedrooms with individual locks and all these things to kind of, let us build our secret little lives and the perfect solution for that entire uh, you know trajectory of civilized existence was the internet and even more so was social media to the point where not only were you important but we're going to build a echo chamber and an algorithm within that and we're going to hand it to you and it's going to tell you everything you wanted to hear everything you wanted to know and everything you wanted to experience and it will reaffirm those and when you are interacting with people who are coming from a different sphere, a different perspective or something like that, it's going to be in this kind of like gang up mentality where you're going to see these 300 or 400, 500 comment posts or something like that, where it's very diverse opinions going at you, although usually broken down into two camps going at it, which also then reaffirms or has other people liking your comments and making you feel like I'm the person who's right. I'm the person who's winning this argument. It makes you feel more vehemently ingrained in that argument and it's through that that you know we've created this ironic situation where you know they want to say the internet is borderless they want to say that the internet is is a a global community and it's indicative of the the global community and it's it's a lot more complicated than that um and it's it's much like when you look at nationalism nationalism arose in in a time of colonization and conquest and conquering Uh, And it really, you don't have to define yourself until the lines start to blur. Uh, So as as colonizing nations go out and spread out across the sea and spread out the the hemispheres and everything like that, their identity as a nation was being drawn into question because they had spread out so far. So they had to figure out who who it is we are. It's more important as an idea than it was as a physical boundary. And in, you know, making a boundary that was defensible, making a border that was defensible. So in a globalized world is the ironic point in which nationalism becomes 
the thing. So as we're dumping our lives into this machine that has global access and can be obviously heavily manipulated by foreign uh, nations and everything, because there's, there's nothing stopping anything. There's nothing stopping anybody. Uh, anybody from anywhere can get on and be anybody they want to pretend to be. Um, and there's click farms and bots and all kinds of shit that exist out there that just muddy the waters and throw a whole bunch into it. Uh, and, make a massive mess of the entire thing. And it, it frankly doesn't even cost that much to do that kind of thing. But the, the waters become super muddy and we kind of create this new idea of having found a new frontier, which was the, uh, the, the mental space, the social space, your safe space, and this, this international global community that was immediately integrated into every aspect of your life, but never at any point articulated as a separate place or as a place where any of these other barriers had any meaning. Um, and so you can see that you can see that in every regard and people just kind of like expect that the, the experience they have, the place that they're coming from is where other people they are interacting are coming from. Um, and it has a lot to say about the medium, not so much about the way we communicate with other people, but you know, that, that becomes a sales pitch of it too. It's like, well, now you can talk to all these people and you can interact with all these people. And it turns out, you know, it, it's telling us that while it's feeding us the exact same thing that we are and the exact same thing that we believe, whether or not that's integrated with bots or real people, it doesn't matter. Uh, it just is creating that catered reality. But this is this is a lot like that, and this is why it's not shocking to see that the resurgent rise of like a, a very militaristic, fascistic nationalism and also, uh, you know, really ultra-left um, socialism uh all rise at the the exact same time in the exact same moment. It's like trying to find some kind of identity when everybody is dumped into this pool where all the things that we've known and all the things we know about who we are are suddenly kind of thrown out of the equation. So this is the new colonialism. This is the new frontier. Uh, and it's the exact same as the old, and it has all the same markings and all the same means and patterns and, and consequences as everything else, except now it's it's removed from reality kind of jumbled up and thrown up and solidified and then it was thrown back into reality uh and that's when you're getting you know this very kind of bold and insane thing and we're sort of like you know uh just the real insanity of our times where you're seeing that people are saying oh you know you need to protect the free speech of fascists and people who are opposing fascists are just crybabies and they need to get over it because they want to have a free society uh and then you get you know, comedic versions of reactions that you have left and right going down the same kind of rabbit hole. But this all keeps coming back to the same point. And that's the point I've made over and over again. I want to continue to make, and I'm going to say it over and over again, is that the way that civilization works, the way that the domestication process works is that we have, you know, there is a human nature and it is based in being nomadic hunter gatherers. Uh, and the way we interact with the world, the way we interact with each other is based off the idea that we're able to, sustain ourselves we're able to to build all the things that we need to do in order to uh, get by from day to day and thrive so the things that we seek out within each other the things we seek out as a culture and as a community are based on the idea of being able to move and being resilient and being able to change streams and not having particular identities that are built up in the first place um, because they're they're counterintuitive they're anti-ecological in nature uh, a strict group identity and a strict identity or anything like that is really just 
that's not how we got here. That's not how humans survive. That's not the fission future kind of culture that we've evolved with um, and makes it possible for us to, to leave because we're not getting along with people or because we want to forge somewhere else. We want to go somewhere else. We want to do something on our own. We want to do something with another person. There's everything about the way that the nomadic hunter-gatherer life functions, this primal anarchy functions, that makes it so that you can do all these things and you can leave and you don't have to build up an allegiance. You're not wed to gardens. You're not wed to storehouses. Uh, It's it's the ultimate form of freedom. But within that, we have all these abilities, we have all this knowledge, we have all this experience, and it makes it so that we can deal with people individually or as groups just as we want to or we don't want to we have that option we have that freedom and within that context we have our meaning and so that's why you don't have philosophers amongst nomadic hunter gatherers you can get people who have ideas people who like to tell stories but not people who are wed to an idea that they build an ideology build an army and then you know kill other people or to go online and spew rhetoric all day long uh just to end up you know shooting up a curves or something like that because they feel entitled to sex from women. Uh, you don't get all these insane things that we're having to deal with. You don't get this circumstance where we're so, our lives are so fucking devoid of meaning that we will do anything to get an identity or do get anything, do anything to get a sense of belonging. And that's where this stuff kind of comes from. And that's where you get this really crazy victimization mentality that is prevalent amongst you know, the, the alt-right, the far-right, um, you know, and you can get the same thing when people want to jump into, like, these really crazy fascistic leftist socialist ideas and, and things like that, uh, which are equally failed. Uh, but, you know, so far, I've been quite as violent. So I don't know what to say or do about this that's immediate. I, I don't have any other answer other than saying, you need to pay attention to the platforms. You need to pay attention to the networks. And we have to be talking about this. And this is this kind of gets back to something that I've felt pretty strongly about. I haven't talked about it quite as much. Um, and I'm sure, again, I'll talk about it more later. Uh, is just some of the, the things about Antifa and where the anarchist movement and the anarchist scene is in general. And, again, another preface, you know, it, if it comes down to punching Nazis, if it comes down to punching fascists, all for it. Uh, yeah, like I've brought up another episode. It's like at one point I wanted to join the Israeli army just because I, I wanted to fucking fight Nazis, and I thought that's what you did. And it turns out it isn't. And it turns out you uh, build border walls in Gaza and Palestine and bomb fucking farmers and shit. Um, it's crazy, crazy stuff that's constantly going on. And, but... Uh, you know, there's, there's more that needs to be said and there's more that needs to be done. And I feel that I feel a difference between when I'm talking to other anarchists and when I'm talking to people who aren't, and I will, and I do constantly defend, uh, Antifa to, uh, I don't know, outsiders, whatever you want to say. Uh, anybody who wants to say it, it's like, oh, it's just a bunch of whiny babies or something like that or cry babies. It's like, well. Uh, yeah, that's that's what the all right's doing. That's what white supremacists are doing. They're crying about their fear of, a, you know, white genocide or whatever kind of bullshit they're talking about online. Uh, so yeah, they're they're punching crybabies, not not 
just crying. Uh, they're doing a pretty good job for the most part. Uh, but you know, if, if it wants to be more than that, if it wants to be more than just punching Nazis, then these are the kinds of questions and the kind of actual discussions, the actual real world discussions that need to be had. And so when I was in, uh, the actual anarchist book fair, uh, last year, I noticed that there was a sharp decline in selling books. Uh, and people were mainly looking for like Antifa swag, uh, and anything like it. And to me, you know, there's, there, it is good and it is good that people are kind of constantly keeping on the, the front line and keeping that, that up there and making sure that people are aware that it's like, this is, this is a thing. This is something that these people ought to be afraid of, but it bothers me to see the content of this entire critique, the content of what it means to be an anarchist, uh, just, just fall by the wayside. And, and to me, anti-fascism is, is such a, a low barrier. It is, it is a specific kind of hierarchical power. Um, and to me, it's like, it's, it's an easy one. It's a pretty easy pass. And I think even most people who, you know, would consider themselves pro state would probably consider themselves anti-fascist or anti-fascism until of course, Antifa became the, the bad guy in the media and stuff like that. And amongst the right, but it is such a low bar, and I, I think that, and I think that I've seen that you know that anarchism has been more than content to just say it's like we're just gonna be the defense, we're just gonna be standing at the front line and hitting the things that come our way, and there's some good work that's been done there. There's a lot of people who have been involved in and in really just like doing information dumps and stuff like that, looking at some of the uh, making or making very loudly and obviously obvious uh the connections between all these uh white supremacist groups and, and pigs and shit like that and that's all good to see but i think that there needs to be more and if you actually want to have these discussions you actually want to figure it out and do more than just trying to punch everything that comes in your way then we need to be looking at systems and we need to understand systems and where they're at and by being more involved online uh you know we want to try and stop the stop the or curb the the flow and curb the growth of like the the white supremacy and shit like that and it's never going to happen online um and i'm not as dismissive as i think lanier would be of a lot of these groups and I, I do find it kind of a complicated ground because it does kind of come off as saying it's like well what does this mean you know if you're going to say hashtag black lives matter hashtag antifa or anything like that is just to generate more algorithms and more intense data set then you know what does it mean but i i you know you can't isolate these problems and that's exactly what's happening if you're isolating fascism from anything else about the state or anything else about how government functions or if you're isolating trump from anything else in the history of uh government and civilization or if you're isolating ice encampments and ice uh children detention centers from the history of civilization or residential schools or any reservation life or anything like that you're missing the entire picture. Uh, and we're not going to punch that problem away. And I don't say that as a fucking pacifist. Trust me. Punch these fucking people. And, you know, people detaining or doing the um, the blockades and stuff like that around ICE. I feel a lot more promise about that than anything Occupy did. Uh, but that needs to be a part of that question. That needs to be a part of that conversation. And instead of using it as a reason to justify getting online and arguing with all these people about these things, 
uh, and building these data sets and building the algorithms and ensuring that the entire system works, you just got to unplug it. You got to not only unplug it, but pull the plug. You got to understand the way that this information works and understand the way that these systems operate. And it is by this constant data mining. It is by this constant information collecting, data sharing, and you know, the building of, which I hate the term, but this bummer thing, it's like the integrated user environment where actions and behaviors and thoughts and everything like that are based off predictive patterns and predictive algorithms. You know, we really have handed over a lot to the machine and we continue to hand over almost every single thing in the machine and and confiding in the machine. And that itself is the problem. And I don't, I don't know what to say in terms of people saying, well, it's like, well, I need to do something about it. Cause I, I agree. I feel the same. So I write, uh, that's why I'm involved in the things that I'm involved in. And I get the drive and I get the, and I fully understand it. And I wish I had a better answer for it's like, well, what do I do if I get offline? Um, you know, there, there are other things to do. You can still fight these people and you can still be involved in that. And I, I hope that you would, and I hope everybody does, but, until we understand how these things operate, where they come from and how they go, and the the entire nature of the, the spectrum from the origins of the reaction points to the current outflows of them, um, we just have to understand that it's like if there's going to be some kind of meaningful conversation or action or whatever that comes of any of this, it's going to necessitate debilitating the machine. At the very base, it means disengaging the machine understanding its networks, understanding the way that it operates and attacking those. And for fuck's sake, somebody needs to just fucking hack Facebook, just take it down. I'm sure it's happened plenty of times and you can hack all kinds of shit. People are hacking governments. If there's hackers out there, how have you not taken that fucking site down yet? I don't understand it, but could solve a lot of problems very quickly or at least get a good jump start on solving a lot of these things. If these things just, if the platforms were attacked or unstable um, and you would think, or you would hope that the more information that comes out about how these things operate, or even again, like I mentioned earlier, this, the, the potential impacts of the uh, facial recognition software uh, that that stuff comes out and people would just pull back, but it's, it's not happening. Uh, people become tamed and domesticated to this level of intrusive technology and, and to the point where, you know, as a, there's, I've talked about this book a number of times, World Without Mind, Franklin Foer, uh, it's like not only will we be accepting of the information we find out about, about technology and social media and all these different corporations from Google and Amazon and everything like it, uh, YouTube, Facebook, uh, but we'll be thankful that we don't have to do that thinking anymore. We'll be thankful that we don't have to enter passwords and and all this shit it just builds up this massive data set and it it turns out to be exceptionally convenient um but this is the consequence of it this is the downside this is the flip side of all these things that are happening as much as we want to believe that these conversations are going on it just comes down to engaging it and there has to be another way other than engaging the machine um so i i i still think there's an awful lot more to be said about it and i'm sure there's people who will take aspects of this out of context uh and there's nothing i can do uh, about that i can't care too much about it but you know there's there's important shit 
within all that and with all the critiques that have come up and with the movements that have come up, particularly with social media and things that are important. And it has been good to be able to, you know, immediately post videos online. And even when you look at something like Standing Rock or when you look at stuff that's happened with Black Lives Matter, um, you know, to make it obvious to people, it's like, you know, you can, you have these cases where people absolutely definitively did nothing wrong or they're standing up for something that is, is that is righteous, that is good, and that is important. And you're getting completely militarized pigs just standing them down. But what happens in response to that and what we've seen isn't many people really having that moment of awakening, awakening or that moment of realization that's like, shit, this is really happening. People just become number to that and more reactionary to it. And that's like, um, you know, you can look at some of these cases of, that have been huge and should be huge about unarmed black men being gunned down by pigs. And there's still people who are looking at it and it's just like, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. The cops didn't do anything wrong. The cops didn't do anything wrong. And they're like, and then it becomes like, so what? He shouldn't have been doing anything. And there's, there's, there's no limit there. Um, people just have become emboldened to the most insane thinking possible. And every time you get the example that should open people's eyes, and I'm sure in, in certain cases does open people's eyes, it just turns this this massively emboldened, gnarly, uh, white supremacist sh- sh- fucking shit empire into just more overt in its goals and saying it's like, no, black lives just don't matter. We want slavery. We want a reintegration of the Confederacy. We we have the might and the right to claim ancestral conquest because of fucking Vinland and some shit mythology. Um, and this is, this is who we are and we love who we are. And if the black lives matter, then white lives matter and we deserve to be who we are. Uh, so, you know, that's part and parcel of the entire thing. That's part and parcel of the, the social media thing. And I, you know, are you going to be go, be able to combat that? Are you be able to gonna, to argue that? And I don't see how, unless you're going to, be able to draw out these conclusions and show where things come and go. But that conversation is never going to happen on social media. It's not going to happen in relation to content. It's not going to happen in relationship to uh, online news sources and things like that. It needs to happen in real life and people need to be dragged out of that circle and that convenience. And it needs to be drawn out of the entire world that technology has created and maintained because shit is just going to keep getting crazier. And this is, all a distraction and all just like things that could only be happening in the death throes of civilization. Uh, and you know, looking at Joseph Tainer, the diminishing returns, it's like, it doesn't get any more diminishing than this. Like that, the, the consequences of having an identity is built solely on the level of acceptance of oppressing and repressing so much of the world in such a profoundly obvious way. And just bold faced denial. And I've asked a question before on the podcast as well. Like, how much money do you have to make in order to believe that climate change isn't happening or climate change isn't impacting the world in real time? Uh, I mean, these are, this is all just insanity, and it's just it, these are distractions that are possible because of the time that we're in and because of the technology that happens to exist at the exact same time that makes it so possible for us to ignore the collapse that's happening all around us. But it could not be more obvious. It couldn't be more prevalent. And 
going through it and going through the system, I mean, it's as futile as revolution itself. Um, and thinking that you need to overcome power by taking power. It's never happened. It's never going to happen in any positive way or any good way. If you want to affect change, you have to destroy and dismantle the means and distribution of the power itself. That's the only way it's ever happened. It's the only way it's ever going to happen. And with the collapse of civilizations, it is absolutely inevitable that it's going to happen. So if we wanted to talk about strategy, we want to talk about how to deal with these kinds of situations and these flares, by all means, when confronted, the only thing you can do is throw yourself on the line. But to avoid those situations and avoid the the obvious and, and seemingly inevitable expansion of them, you have to do a lot fucking more. And that's where it comes back to this entire question of civilization. That's where it comes back to the question of domestication. What does it mean to be a social animal that is held captive living in a hyper-technological modernity and a globalized civilization that is addicted to fossil fuels and facing the end of cheap oil or already past the end of cheap oil and is dependent on agriculture in a world that is increasingly hostile to the idea of having a predictable ecological system at all because of the industrialism that that agriculture made possible. And this is what we're getting at. This is what Black and Green View is getting at. This is what we're getting at with uh, anarcho-primitivism has gone after uh, and, you know, the the emphasis of what I call primal anarchy and I'm going to increasingly be pointing to as, as a thing in and of itself. Um, but I can't, I just can't draw that out enough. I can't make that clear enough and I'm just going to keep bashing my head against the wall uh, to to make the point that if we're looking for solutions, if we're looking for answers, they're never going to come from within the system. They're never going to come from within the machine. So the only way to have these discussions, to have meaningful long-term impact is by looking at the systems themselves. So to all the people involved with Antifa, all the people who have come because they're just, they can't stand seeing what's happening in the world right now, um, it's not unique uh, in terms of the history of civilization. And that's the, the very sad and real truth. Um, what's happening now has been happening for a very long time. It's just being emboldened by a new kind of technology or a new new depth of technology uh, and a new level of integrated machinery that both exposes you to the horrors of civilization and makes you completely numb to them at the exact same time. Um, so the way we understand that is by understanding that context. And so that's vital. So, um, a little rambling, but that's, that's where I'm at on that. And I, again, I will be addressing this obviously in future issues or episodes of the podcast and in black and green review. Um, but that's it for this episode. So it's uh, black and green org is the website. All black and green press books and merch, stuff like that, is available through there. Uh, there's a tab for black and green podcast on that that has all past episodes. Uh, the podcast is now being put on Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Uh, I have not loaded up a lot of the back episodes, so I think there's only the last, there's the two part eight and then the nine uh, episode that are up there. Uh, and I'm going to work out eventually getting everything on some other platform. But in the meantime, if you go on blackandgreenreview.org, on the Black and Green Podcast 
tab. All past episodes are on there. They're all loaded onto archive. Um, there's also support buttons through Patreon and PayPal, which go a long way. Black and green is exceptionally expensive, so any support is very useful, and we have a lot of books that are going to be coming out this year. So the more help we can get, uh, the better that'll be, and the faster all those will come out. Um, as I said, number six is in the works. If you're interested in contri- contributing, go to the same webpage. Uh, if you have letters, questions, comments, anything like it, email me at blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. That's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. Or send a letter to Black and Green, P.O. Box 402, Salem, Missouri, 65560. That's Black and Green, P.O. Box 402, Salem, Missouri, 65560. And I will do my best not to have so much time in between episodes going forward. All right. Thanks for listening. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is M1, M-A-1, M-A de la gente, comprende y entiende, you feel me? I'm one half a dead press. I tell it like it is. Everything is political rap duo. Here holding my middle finger up to imperialism worldwide. And you in tune right now to the rebel beat. The Rebel Beat is a monthly podcast of radical political music across different genres and across different continents. It's the mixtape to a riot against police brutality. It's your nightly newscast set to bass and beats. It's protest anthems from Hong Kong to Istanbul to Ferguson to Montreal. Give it a listen at rebelbeatradio.com or subscribe today on all your favorite podcast platforms.